This is an ABC podcast. In November 1975, Australian politics was in a state of paralysis. Whitlam and Fraser had spent the past month clawing at each other across the floor of Parliament and on the airwaves. The standoff between the two men hung over everything. The opposition had cut off the government's money supply and nothing was getting done. There was a sense that this argument had gone on too long and that the whole thing was about to blow within days, if not hours. And then, in the midst of this standoff, on the 10th of November, Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser went to a dinner together. Their host was the recently re-elected Lord Mayor of Melbourne, and as the guests of honour, Whitlam and Fraser were under intense scrutiny. Officially, it's an evening of local council politicking with the hospitality of the Lord Mayor. But few people took their eyes off the extraordinary juxtaposition of personalities at the main table. Journalists and guests watched them closely as they sat down, just metres apart. While all the speechmakers trod carefully around the constitutional crisis, the Prime Minister had no hesitation in putting his case yet again as he turned to the Lord Mayor. I have very great pleasure in congratulating you this year, as you congratulated me last year, on achieving a second term. Yours, of course, is for only one year, whereas everybody knows mine is for three. Whitlam was basically saying to Fraser, the people elected me for a three-year term, and I'm not going to call an early election just because you want one. It was appointed barb at Fraser's expense in front of an attentive audience. And as the crowd responded for the Prime Minister, Mr Fraser just grinned slightly, resting his hands on his cheeks, puffing gently on his cigar. In the middle of such a brutal, high-stakes game, this dinner was like a strange interlude. And as the evening drew to a close, the key players, Whitlam and Fraser and their advisers, started getting ready to leave. The next day, Parliament would be sitting in Canberra, and they needed to get back that night. As generous as ever, Goff offered, maybe one or two others from the Liberal Party, uh, offered them a uh, trip back in his VIP aircraft. Friends close, but enemies closer. That's right. We didn't suspect them. How naive we were. The head of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, John Menadue, was waiting for Whitlam when the plane arrived in Canberra. He had a bunch of documents to give to Whitlam before going to bed. I hadn't gone down to Melbourne because I had work to do in the department, but I was out at the airport pretty late at night when they got back. This odd collection of political rivals emerged from the plane together. As he walked into the terminal, Malcolm Fraser was chatting with another senior opposition MP, a guy called Philip Lynch, and as Menadue walked towards them, he overheard something that stuck in his mind. Remember Philip Lynch, I heard him say to Malcolm, do you think he knows? It was a comment that would stay with John Menadue for years to come. Do you think he knows? And we didn't know. I'm Alex Mann, and in this episode of The 11th, the crisis erupts. 
Governor-General commissioned me to form a government until elections can be held. All hell broke loose. Extraordinary scenes, the like of which hasn't been seen before. And what a disgrace it was. You're saying that Sir John Kerr is completely unjustified. Completely, completely and utterly unjustified. It was a moment of autocracy for the next four hours in Australia. Well may we say, God save the Queen. Very good morning to you. Bill Dowsett with AM for Tuesday the 11th of November and what a day today is. It's Remembrance Day and the day on which there could be some end to our own constitutional deadlock. It was the morning after the Melbourne dinner and in the midst of the crisis, John Menadue was feeling upbeat. It was a pleasant day. It was good weather. It was November. John Menadue got up and had breakfast and then jumped in his car. His wife Cynthia would soon be getting the kids off to school. Suppose I was in the office by about about seven or eight o'clock that morning. In his job, John Menadue was in constant contact with Whitlam. They'd worked together off and on for more than a decade. They'd travelled together, they knew each other's families, and over time, they'd grown close. Menadue was a believer in Whitlam's program, and on this day, he had a feeling his boss would finally prevail over Malcolm Fraser. I was confident that day that the political impasse would be resolved. As the stalemate stretched into its fourth week, there were signs that Fraser's sizeable lead in the polls was starting to evaporate. His popularity had been growing in line with Labor's scandals, but now his risky decision to block the government's money supply was costing him support. The latest opinion polls are suggesting that people are not behind Mr Fraser's stand on supply. According to the poll conducted by the Sydney Morning Herald, 70% of Australia's capital city voters think the Senate should allow supply to pass and over half think that Labor should continue to govern. Although Fraser's popularity was falling, Whitlam still didn't have a clear election-winning lead in the polls. Yes, there has been support gained uh, by the ALP since its all-time low of September 6, but they haven't increased their support enough to win an election. Whitlam was refusing to go to an early election, he was insistent that his government deserved to serve its full term. And now, as the crisis looked like it couldn't go on much longer, he had a new plan. And John Menadue thought it might just work. Gough Whitlam had determined that there would be a half-Senate election and that he was confident that the Governor-General would agree. That's sort of like a mini-election, not a full one. The government would stay in place, the House of Representatives would stay untouched, and only half the Senate seats would be up for grabs. If they fought a strong election campaign, Labor might be able to take back control of the Senate. And if they did, the deadlock would be broken and Whitlam would finally be able to pass the budget and turn the money tap back on. So on Tuesday, the 11th of November, Whitlam called Malcolm Fraser to a meeting. It was scheduled for 9am. Do you think anything can come from the meeting? indicates a willingness to change his mind. Are you planning any further moves? <laughs> if I were, I, I wouldn't be indicating them in advance. There was intense speculation about what would happen. Just about an hour from now, they'll be meeting in the Prime Minister's suite in Parliament House. Mr Whitlam and Mr Fraser, both publicly, it seems, committed to intransigence. Privately, well, who knows? John Menadue was already inside as the two leaders arrived. Whitlam came first to find a pack of journalists waiting. 
Never seen you fellas up so early. Then Fraser followed. Do you seriously expect Mr Whitlock to give ground on this today? Well, uh, we'll find out, won't we? And at 9am, they all sat down for the meeting. It was in the old Parliament House, in the corner where the Prime Minister's office was. John Menager listened carefully as Whitlam put his plan to Fraser. Well, I think he, he opened the discussion that uh, he hoped the matter could be resolved and that uh, he was proposing a half-Senate election. But Fraser had his own plan. It was very clear that uh, Malcolm Fraser would not have a bar of that. Uh, he was demanding an election for the House of Representatives. A full election. Full election, yes. He was set on, on the course that uh, he was pursuing and he would not be diverted from it. Whitlam already had his majority in the House of Reps. And with the polls dead even, he wasn't going to risk a full election. So as he'd done every day for the past four weeks, he said no. And it was very clear that there was to be no resolution from that meeting. To bring us up to date with events this morning, here's Andrew Potter in Canberra. Mr Whitlam went straight from the meeting with Mr Fraser into the caucus for which he was already late, and he told the party straight out what had transpired. Mr Fraser had told him that the opposition senators would continue to defer any vote or decision on the crucial appropriation bills. In that situation, the Prime Minister was adamant. He had no option but to advise the Governor-General to call a half-Senate election. Whitlam didn't need Fraser's permission to call a half-Senate election. All he needed was the Governor-General to sign off on it. And as usual, Whitlam was confident. He'd spoken with Sir John Kerr on the phone that morning and told him what he planned to do. He'd organised to meet with Kerr at lunchtime. He'd drafted the official letter advising Kerr to call the half-Senate election. And in spite of the warnings that he'd had about Kerr from colleagues like Elizabeth Reid, he was confident that when he gave that letter to Kerr, Kerr would do as advised, the crisis would be over and Fraser would probably lose his job. But there was a problem with that plan. With Fraser still blocking supply, the government wouldn't have enough money to run an election. And rumours had started swirling around Parliament House that Kerr might have other ideas. As Manager left that morning meeting between Fraser and Whitlam, he ran into an old friend, Eric Walsh, Whitlam's media advisor. And I saw him there, and I always have a chat to Eric, and he said to me, Jack, he always called me Jack rather than John, Jack, are you sure Kerr's okay? And I said, Eric, stop worrying, stop worrying. He's okay. And he said, that's not what I'm hearing. What do you think he meant, not okay? That Kerr was going to fold. I'm sure that's what he meant. It turns out that was the gossip around Parliament House, that something was brewing and that Kerr might act against the government. Conjecture, speculation, gossip, but there's a lot of it around. Around about uh, quarter past 12, I received a phone call from uh, the Governor-General's official secretary, David Smith, Dale Budd was Malcolm Fraser's chief of staff. He said that the Governor-General wanted to see Malcolm Fraser. It was, I think, the third time that the Governor-General had asked to see the opposition leader, as he had been seeing the Prime Minister. Kerr had been consulting with both leaders during the crisis, but Fraser had been using these meetings to heap pressure on Kerr. 
threatening to criticise Kerr publicly if he didn't act. Now the Governor-General was asking for another meeting. And although we thought we were close to, uh, close to D-Day, that call didn't uh, set off any particular alarm bells to me. Bud took down a quick message for Fraser, who was busy on the floor of Parliament. Contrary, no. I sent a note in to Malcolm Fraser saying the Governor-General wanted to see him. Little did Bud know, this meeting would be different from all the others. He said that uh, Mr Whitlam was coming out to see the Governor-General as soon as he finished speaking in the parliamentary chamber and that uh, Malcolm Fraser should follow ten minutes afterwards. Whatever Kerr was planning, he clearly didn't want Fraser and Whitlam to cross paths. Kerr wanted Whitlam to come first and Fraser to follow 10 minutes after. At around 1pm, everyone in the parliamentary chamber rose for a one-hour lunch break. Malcolm Fraser came back to the office. Dale Budd was in charge of getting Fraser to his meeting with the Governor-General. We waited 10 minutes. We had organised a car and a driver. So far, everything seemed to be going smoothly. They'd left time for Whitlam to go on ahead. Malcolm Fraser walked out through the building and got into the car and and uh, set off for Government House. Bud rang Government House to say that Fraser was on his way, but Kerr's secretary had a question. And he said, has the Prime Minister left yet, left Parliament House yet? And I said, uh, I don't know. Bud had been careful to make sure that Fraser waited 10 minutes, as instructed, but he hadn't checked if Whitlam had gone on ahead as planned there was now a chance that the two men would run into each other on the way. And I probably literally ran through the building to the House of Representatives side where the Prime Minister's car always waited at his private entrance. And the car was still there. Uh, I ran back. I was certainly running, I think, by this time. Then I rang David Smith and said, uh, Malcolm Fraser is on his way, but Gough Whitlam hasn't left yet. And he said something like, we'll sort it out. So Fraser arrived at Kerr's residence before Whitlam. Kerr's secretary quickly ushered him inside. Fraser was then moved out of sight into a side office by one of the Governor-General's assistants. For weeks, Fraser had been using his meetings with Kerr to pressure him to act. Now he could tell that something was about to happen. He was nervous, and Kerr's assistant kept trying to make small talk. Fraser tried to ignore him. Then Whitlam arrived at the Governor-General's residence, oblivious to the fact that the opposition leader was already holed up inside. If Whitlam knew that Fraser was there, or he'd run into him on the way, he says he never would have gone inside. In Whitlam's top pocket was the letter requesting a half-Senate election. He walked up to Kerr's door. Inside the house... Sir John Kerr was hosting some potential new staff members for a lunch. Sir John Kerr is actually entertaining and they were having a welcoming committee uh, over lunch that day. So Kerr actually was having drinks. He was having a, a pre-lunch tipple. Jenny Hocking is Whitlam's biographer. She says when Whitlam arrived, Kerr got up from his lunch. He'd been alerted to Whitlam's arrival. So he left the party saying, I need to go and uh, see the Prime Minister. As Fraser waited quietly in a side room, 
Gough Whitlam was met at the door by one of Kerr's assistants. Who takes him down the corridor into Sir John Kerr's study. And suddenly there they were. Kerr and Whitlam face to face at the absolute peak of the crisis. Whitlam reached into his pocket for the letter. The letter he believed would bring the crisis to an end. The letter calling for a half-Senate election. But he never even got the chance to hand it over. And as he moved to hand Kerr the letter that was in his top pocket, Kerr put his hand up holding a letter of his own. He said, before you give that to me, I have a letter for you. The letter said that Gough Whitlam was no longer the Prime Minister. And Whitlam said it was the greatest shock he had ever experienced when he turned the letter over and saw that it was a letter terminating not just his commission, but the commission of his entire government and every minister in it. Whitlam felt ambushed. Just days earlier, he'd been telling journalists that Kerr would follow his instructions. He'd been telling his Labor colleagues that the Governor-General would do the right thing. And now Kerr had sacked him. His sole instinct was to escape that room and get away from Kerr. Kerr said to him, we will all have to live with this. And Whitlam said to him, you certainly will. And then he shook his hand. Whitlam shook Sir John Kerr's hand. He said to me later when I interviewed him that he shook his hand out of habit and courtesy. What Whitlam didn't know is that while Kerr was handing him that letter, his political opponent, Malcolm Fraser, was only a few rooms away. Fraser was actually in Yarralumna while Gough Whitlam was being dismissed and it meant that the moment Gough Whitlam walked out, out, out of the door from which he had entered, got into his, his uh, Commonwealth car and left, Malcolm Fraser emerged from the other end of the corridor, went into Kerr's study and was signed on as the new Prime Minister. I got a call almost immediately from David Smith, who was the official secretary at Government House. John Menadieu was one of the first to hear the news. And he told me that the Prime Minister had been dismissed and that Malcolm Fraser had been sworn as the new Prime Minister. Do you remember your response? I just shook. I, I couldn't believe really what I was hearing and I, I said to him, you're not joking, are you? Menadieu put the phone down, reeling. He told some senior bureaucrats what had just happened, then got in his car and drove to the PM's official residence. So I went up to, uh, drove up to the lodge, which is only seven or eight minutes away. Menadieu was on autopilot as he pulled into the driveway, parked his car and went inside to find Whitlam. Goff was in the sunroom, sort of almost like an old style veranda that he spacious sunroom. And there he was, not surrounded by advisers shouting swear words, but seated calmly at a table, eating lunch. He was eating a steak. Eating, eating a steak? Yeah. He was always a good eater, God, a good eater. And the first thing he said to me was, comrade, the bastard's done a game on me. Gough Whitlam was no longer Prime Minister. If he wanted a chance at getting his job back, he'd need a new plan and fast. But John Menadieu was starting to realise that it might not be up to him to help. 
And at that point, the phone rang. I got a phone call at the lodge from my secretary in the department and she said, John, Malcolm Fraser wants to see you urgently in Parliament House. And I said to her, tell him you can't find me. Meniju's head was spinning. He was still trying to figure out who his boss was. I think by this stage I was feeling a little apprehensive, confused about my role. I thought I'd been working for Gough Whitlam. Now it was clear to me that I wasn't. I was working, in fact, for Malcolm Fraser. Technically, Meniju was never working directly for Whitlam. He was a senior public servant working for whoever was Prime Minister. But in reality, Meniju was much more than just a bureaucrat to Whitlam. Meniju had worked with Whitlam for nearly a decade in the 60s when Labor was in opposition. He was on board with Whitlam's vision and had worked alongside Whitlam even as Fraser had worked to take him down. And as Meniju stewed all that over in his mind, the phone rang again. She rang back again. Said, John, this is a message and I quote, the Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, wants to see you urgently at Parliament House. So I, I've got to go. Um, so I explained briefly to Goff and others that I'd been summoned. Meniju was painfully caught between two dueling loyalties. On one side, as a friend and confidant to his now former boss, Goff Whitlam. On the other, as a proud public servant, duty-bound to serve the new Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, Whitlam's arch-political rival. In retrospect, I don't think I handled it all that well. I can plead that I was didn't really appreciate and understand what had really happened. As he tells this story, John Menadieu's eyes fill with tears and his lip trembles. Gough Whitlam meant so much to me. What he'd done for the country and, and the inspiration he gave me, how do I make a break? How do I sort of say, sorry, Gough, I'm off, I've got another employer. So I didn't explain it perhaps as fully as I could. So instead of making a farewell speech or saying an elaborate goodbye to all of these people he'd worked with for years... Menadieu just forced himself to get up, leave the room, and get back into his car. So I took my leave, and out I went. It still hurts to remember that oh, moment. Man. Yeah. And I, I stopped just before I was getting into the car, and I thought, oh, should I go back and explain myself better? But I didn't. The nation was now in uncharted territory. Nothing like this had ever happened before, and the crisis was far from over. In fact, things only got more dramatic as the day went on. In his sunroom at the lodge, Whitlam was developing a new plan. He may have been sacked as Prime Minister, but there was still one thing working in his favour. Because Whitlam and the Labour Party still had a majority in the House of Representatives, and under normal circumstances, that's all you need to form a government. It was just after 1pm, and in less than an hour, the House was due to sit. So Whitlam's new plan was simple. 
he would just walk in and use his majority to pass a motion of confidence in himself as Prime Minister and get the Governor-General to reinstate him. Remember, Whitlam is the great institutionalist. He's the great believer in parliamentary democracy. This is Jenny Hocking again, Whitlam's biographer. He believed that parliamentary democracy, despite what had happened, would take its course and he would be reinstated that afternoon. Whitlam was confident his new plan would work, but he was at a disadvantage. He does not know that the moment he walked out of the Governor-General's office, barely an hour earlier, that Malcolm Fraser was secreted down the other end of the corridor, hiding in a room. Whitlam didn't know that. He spent all of his lunchtime planning a motion of confidence in his own uh, party for, to enable himself to be reappointed as Prime Minister, unaware that Malcolm Fraser had already been appointed. As Whitlam drafted a motion for the House of Representatives, he had no idea that actually he'd missed something crucial and the brand new Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, was already one step ahead. At 2pm, both Houses of Parliament sat. Whitlam prepared himself to assert his authority in the House of Reps, the Green Chamber. But over in the Red Chamber, the Senate, something very strange was happening. Almost a full hour after Whitlam had been dismissed as Prime Minister, none of his senators had any idea that he'd been sacked and that Australia had a new Prime Minister. No one had bothered to walk the less than 30 metres from the House of Reps over the foyer at Parliament House to the Senate to tell them. Gough Whitlam was so focused on a strategy for the House of Representatives he hadn't even bothered to tell his senators he'd been sacked. Journalist Paul Kelly was there on the day. Gough never thought about the Senate. He rarely thought about the Senate. And on this particular day, when more than any other day in his entire political life, he needed to think about the Senate, he didn't. You have to remember that for weeks, the Senate had been deadlocked. Nothing much happened there because every time Labor tried to pass supply, the coalition senators would just block it. But on this day, the Labor senators were about to be caught completely by surprise. Because instead of blocking supply, as the opposition had done for weeks, at 2.24pm on the 11th of November, all of a sudden, they passed it. The Senate passed the budget in only two minutes, after holding it up for more than four weeks. The Senate then adjourned indefinitely. As the Labor senators struggled to understand what had just happened, the horrible truth finally dawned on them. They'd just passed supply, not for their PM, but for a new PM, Malcolm Fraser. And what a disgrace it was that the Labor Party in the Senate didn't know that the government was sacked, that they were, that they were no longer in government. I mean, this is appalling. I mean, it's just a disgrace. Outside Parliament and across Australia, people were still largely oblivious to what was happening, whereas inside Parliament, events were starting to accelerate rapidly. Whitlam had suffered a huge blow in the Senate, but he still had his plan to reassert his authority in the House of Representatives, the house where government is formed. So attention turned to the Green Chamber. Whitlam walked into Parliament House with a, with a motion that had been devised over lunch in the lodge, 
Whitlam still believed in the supremacy of the House of Representatives, and it was there that he still had his majority. His plan was to move a motion that would reinstate him as Prime Minister. But like his senators, Whitlam was about to get blindsided. Because before he even had a chance to deliver his motion, Malcolm Fraser stood up to speak. The Honourable Member for Wannan. It was 2.34pm, just 10 minutes after supply had passed in the Senate. Mr Speaker, this afternoon the Governor-General commissioned me to form a government until elections can be held. Order. Order. I'd suggest that honourable members on my right remain silent. They want to stay in the House. This was the first public announcement that Malcolm Fraser had been installed as caretaker Prime Minister of Australia. The purpose is to permit a deadlock between the Houses of Parliament to be resolved and to return Australia to stable government. It will be my sole purpose to ensure that Australia has the general, has the general election to which it is constitutionally entitled and which has so far been denied it. It was Fraser's first speech as Prime Minister and the first official confirmation that Whitlam and the Labor Party had of his appointment. Parliament erupted. He was greeted with very loud cries of shame, shame from, uh, uh, from the Labor Party, to, uh, to use their correct title now. Then uh, another Labor backbencher, uh, the member for Eden Monaro, called out, it's war. And uh, yet again came the cries from the Labor Party, we will remember. And, and so it went on. With the Governor-General's authority behind him, Fraser was now pushing for an immediate double dissolution election. But Whitlam still had his majority in the House and was pushing for his own reinstatement as Prime Minister. And you then see the extraordinary and enthralling battle play out on the floor of the House where two governments hang in the balance. That is Fraser's appointed government and the Whitlam elected government. And then Mr Whitlam grabbed another chance to turn the tables on Mr Fraser. And it's a sort of duelling motions, but what happens in the end is that Whitlam on his feet has to think of a whole new motion. Whitlam now needed a motion that would both dismiss Fraser and reinstate him. Mr Speaker, furthermore, as has been demonstrated this afternoon... If you listen carefully, you can hear the moment that Whitlam stumbles as he addresses Malcolm Fraser as Prime Minister for the first time. The party or the parties which the um, Prime Minister leads do not have a majority in the House of Representatives. Mr Speaker, it is proper, I believe, that you should forthwith advise the Governor-General that the party I lead has the confidence of the House of Representatives and should be called to form His Excellency's Government. So it was a two-pronged, um, a very clever two-pronged motion. Not only a motion of no confidence in Malcolm Fraser as Prime Minister and the government he leads, but calling on the Governor-General to recommission a government led by Gough Whitlam. The question now is that this House expresses its want of confidence in the Prime Minister and requests the Speaker to note, to immediately advise His Excellency the Governor-General to call the Honourable Member for Wirrawa to form a government. Whitlam's motion passed easily with a resounding 10-vote margin. The question be now put. May that opinion say aye, contrary no. I think the ayes have it. The House will divide, ring the bells. Whitlam had won where he thought it counted. 
In his mind, there was no way to deny the power he now held. He'd won a majority vote of confidence in the House of Reps. This is where governments are formed and prime ministers made. Now all he needed was for the Speaker of the House to convey the news to the Governor-General and get the official sign-off. The Speaker adjourned the House at 3.15pm and phoned the Governor-General's Secretary to make an immediate appointment. But Sir John Kerr said he was busy. In spite of the urgency of the Speaker's message, he was told he'd have to wait an hour and a half. So just after four, the Speaker jumped in a car and drove to Government House. The Speaker's car pulled up at the front gates. It was 4.25pm. All he had to do now was to go inside and see Sir John Kerr, give him the resolution to sign, and Whitlam's authority would be restored. But when he got to the gates of Government House, he couldn't get in. The gates were locked. As the Speaker waited outside the gates of Government House, news was spreading about the crazy and confusing events in Canberra. A day of crisis in Canberra continues. Walter Ryan, 3DB News. Canberra is the scene of events unprecedented in Australian political history. Within an hour of being sacked as Prime Minister, Mr Gough Whitlam moved the motion aimed at enabling him to continue in office. John Highfield of our Canberra staff has been looking around Parliament House for comments and reactions to what's happened today. John, what have you been able to turn up? There is a small rumour going around the lobbies at the present time that the story will change substantially in the next hour or two, or certainly by this evening. Even the politicians inside Parliament struggled to keep up. I believe, I've been told just in the corridor, that they they now won't see the Speaker of the House of Representatives to have that motion conveyed to him. He's refused to see Mr... Well, I'm not certain of that, I'm told of that. But look, this government has a a, a majority intact. The Governor-General's refused to recognise that fact. What Sir John Kerr did that afternoon has caused controversy ever since. It was a moment of autocracy for the next four hours in Australia. It's a shameful day in Australian politics that a Governor-General could completely ignore not only any House of Representatives motion, but the most important motion a House of Representatives can ever pass. That is a motion to form or unform government. Even now, John Menadue is livid about this. Even Queen Elizabeth would acknowledge, I think, is that you never refuse to see a Speaker because it's a Speaker who can convey the mood of the House, whether this party or that party has a majority. And at the point of time when that resolution was passed, the Labor Party had a majority and Kerr refused to listen or to act. Kerr refused to see the Speaker. He kept him locked out for an hour at Yarralumla. Sir John Kerr was stalling. He was determined to finish what he'd started. And as the Speaker waited impatiently out the front of Government House... What he didn't know was that Malcolm Fraser had beaten him there and that Fraser had been ushered inside immediately and that he'd finished the paperwork with Kerr. They'd set the election in train and shut down the parliament. So by the time the Speaker's appointment came around at 4.45pm, he was no longer the Speaker. Parliament had been dissolved and the motion he held in his hand was useless. It was all over. I have today advised Sir John Kerr to dissolve both Houses of the Parliament 
so that the people themselves can decide what government they want for Australia. The Liberal and National Country Parties took the action we did after three years of grossly incompetent and damaging economic mismanagement. Under these circumstances, we believe that the people of Australia ought to have the chance to exercise their right to judge. The government, the Prime Minister, was dismissed. Fraser's Chief of Staff, Dale Budd, didn't feel like celebrating, even though he was on the winning side. There was no sense of being triumphant or jubilant about uh, what had happened in the fact of the dismissal. There was just a deep sense of vindication that Fraser and the opposition had been right to make a stand and push this dysfunctional government out of office. There was a great sense of um, not only relief, but almost that uh, Sir John Kerr, by his action, had uh, given a, a big seal of approval to the coalition's actions in blocking supply, which was probably a, a very exaggerated, a very exaggerated perception of, of what had happened. But uh, the sense of concern that uh, blocking supply might have been the wrong thing to do, that was completely, it completely vanished. People felt that the, uh, the actions of the coalition, they'd been exonerated, if you like, The high-stakes stalemate was now over. Fraser had won. And Parliament House descended into near-total chaos. There are literally hundreds of members of the general public who are spilling out onto the steps of the Parliament as news of uh, what had happened got around. Extraordinary scenes, the like of which probably hasn't been seen too many times before in the National Parliament. I could come in, in here, Hugh. It's uh, Andrew Potter in Canberra. Yes. Uh, just to illustrate that things are literally happening every minute here... Mr Whitlam's office, the Prime Ministerial suite, has literally been cleared out and that all his furniture is out on the footpath at the moment and the same with the offices uh, of his staff. His press office, his press offices are packing up uh, rather hurriedly and they're pretty unsure of their own fate, to, to say the least. Every journalist in the place was running somewhere, either to file stories or back down to the front of Parliament House. Goff's been sacked, Goff's been, Goff's been sacked. Whitlam's press secretary, Paddy Warne, watched as panicked staff started loading boxes of documents into waiting cars. All hell broke loose. There was feet rushing past the press office. Well, it was as though there was this palace, and there was to an extent, a palace revolution. And if the government's replaced, the new government comes in and goes through everything, are there secrets to be found or aren't there secrets to be found? Do they want to pinch policy? I, I mean, nobody was thinking straight. It really is a little hard to get any clear indication on just the way things are going. You run the risk of being annihilated by a trolley as you move around the floor, if not uh, some uh, members of the uh, general public uh, spontaneously demonstrating. There were removalist vans and ordinary people's vans and utes turning up to the side of Parliament House and boxes of papers were being loaded into them and taken off for safekeeping. I mean, it was a mad, a fairly mad time. By now, the news of Fraser's appointment and Whitlam's sacking was filling radio bulletins across the country. Political sensation in the national capital. Prime Minister Mr Whitlam has been sacked. Mr Fraser told Parliament that the Governor-General took the position that a Prime Minister who cannot obtain supply must resign or advise a general election. The opposition leader, Mr Fraser, is the new Prime Minister of Australia. Hundreds of Whitlam's true believers were converging on Parliament House, and they were furious. 
their government had been dismissed. And they were coming to make sure people knew how outraged they were about it. I think it's a very real possibility to snowball into violence and an anarchy. There are literally hundreds of members of the general public who are spilling out onto the steps of the parliament as news of uh, what had happened got around. So I was walking back from uh, Parliament House to West Block, which is only five minutes. There was a stream of people going walking through the car park across to Parliament House. John Menadieu was still in a daze. Since he'd left Whitlam eating a steak a few hours earlier, he'd been working side by side with Malcolm Fraser, he'd switched off the part of his brain that registered the significance of what was happening around him. I was almost on autopilot. There were jobs that had to be done. But at some point in all of that chaos, John Menadieu had snuck away to call his wife Cynthia and tell her what had happened. It was a quick call. His kids had just got back from school. And his daughter Susan had been making toast in the kitchen. Mum was on the phone in the next room, and I assumed that she was speaking to Dad. And then she hung the phone up and just came racing into the room. She was looking really distraught. And she said, Goff's been sacked. And basically we all said, what? You can't sack a Prime Minister. And then she said, he's been sacked. The Governor-General sacked Goff. Now, as John Menadieu walked towards the steps of Parliament House, he was surprised to see his wife and children right there in front of him. And I was walking through the car park and uh, my wife, Cynthia, and her oldest daughter were also rushing through the car park. And then Dad came up. He was biting his lower lip. And then I thought, oh, well, he's really stressed. And I said, where are you going? And Cynthia said... We're going over to Parliament to demonstrate against that bastard Fraser. It was a phrase, term like bastard I'd never heard a use in my life, then or since. But it suddenly dawned on me, it's almost like a bucket of water being thrown over my head, that something quite dramatic had happened. Finally, the gravity, the immorality, the deception that I had witnessed now started coming back to me. Hundreds of people now surrounded the main doors of Old Parliament House. Whitlam's supporters in the crowd were baying for something, maybe for revenge or maybe just a chance to cheer for Whitlam. But instead of Whitlam, the next person to appear on the steps was the Governor-General's secretary, David Smith. The secretary to the Governor-General has just arrived on the steps of Parliament, uh, being forcing his way through the crowd here. Hundreds of people cheering, we want Goff, as he comes out onto the steps. As the Governor-General's secretary began to read the proclamation, a throng of journalists pushed up against him. And Goff Whitlam slid up behind him, towering over his right shoulder. By His Excellency's command, Malcolm Fraser, Prime Minister, John R. Kerr, 
Governor-General. God save the Queen. Whitlam stepped past the Governor-General's secretary and up to the small forest of microphones angling up towards him. He looked up and out over the now hushed crowd with a half-smile on his face and began speaking. Ladies and gentlemen... Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. The proclamation which you have just heard read by the Governor-General's official secretary was countersigned Malcolm Fraser. undoubtedly go down in Australian history from Remembrance Day 1975 as Kerr's Kerr. To Whitlam, Fraser might have been Kerr's Kerr, but to Fraser's supporters, he'd cemented his place in Liberal Party folklore as the leader who bet it all and won. In eight months, he'd taken the Liberal Party from opposition to caretaker government. It had been a huge and unprecedented day in Australian politics, and as night fell on November the 11th, Fraser was having a drink to celebrate. Meanwhile, John Menadue was back at his office, hard at work for his new boss. I had to take some papers again to Malcolm to sign. And he said, oh, he didn't say comrade, but he said, John, I'll be over at uh, the Commonwealth Club, which I was not a member of, uh, which was where the most senior public servants and lobbyists uh, used to meet. Uh, can you come over there and bring the papers and we'll have a drink? So on the night of the dismissal, I was over there. I had a red wine with Malcolm Fraser, got him to sign some papers and he said, would you like to stay for a meal? And I said, no, if you don't mind, I think I'll go home to the family. Menadieu had been holding it together all day. That was my retreat for the day, to get home and to try and shut out what had happened. A bit hard, but it was the only consolation I had that day, to get home to the family. Sir John Kerr had made one of the most famous decisions in Australian political history. Later, it would become clear that others knew what Kerr was planning. And as Australians began picking over the events of November the 11th, a new story began to take shape. In the next episode of the 11th, the secrets emerge. The palace through Prince Charles was aware of the possibility of the dismissal of accusations about whether, in fact, the CIA was involved. What happened with the dismissal was an Australian failure. He said, would you, in the interest of history, speak to me about it? He looked at me and said, I owe history nothing. The whole future of Australian democracy is in your hands.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. If you're looking for another great podcast, you should totally check out Conversations with Australia's masters of the intimate interview, Richard Feidler and Sarah Konoski. One episode in particular you might want to search for is about the toppling of a more recent PM by his own party. The interviewee is veteran political insider Nikki Sava. More than anyone, Nikki knows the story surrounding the toppling of Malcolm Turnbull and all the backroom intrigue. So find out how Scott Morrison made his way to the lodge and exactly how the Liberal Party became what it is today. Conversations is an ABC podcast that's been going on for more than a decade now, so you'll never run out of absolute gems from their ginormous back catalogue. Listen for free on the ABC Listen app or on podcast apps like Apple and Google.